This is No Stop Lights with Ken R. Hey, we toyed around with podcasting. We're not toying around with podcasting any longer. We have a guest in our studio. Thank you um, for finding No Stop Lights with Ken R. Thank you for um, subscribing. Uh, we get some of that Google money when you subscribe, so we need you to subscribe. Um, speaking of money and sponsors, I want to thank Mickey Fins, Marlboro Pity Electric Co-op, Schofields, Carolina Bank, and Pepsi of uh, Florence. They're the first um, victims that we uh, we got signed up to support our feeble attempt at podcasting, I guess. Um, but we're really a podcast today. We have with us the Attorney General of South Carolina, Alan Wilson. Hey, sir. How are you? Hey, Ken. It's great and, to be and, with and you. How you doing, man? I mean, th- th- this is not a... Um, I mean, this sitting Fox or CBS or NBC or ABC, you, you've kind of run through the gauntlet recently. I, I have. As I have the AG of South Carolina, this is two dudes but, just having a but, conversation. But Ken, this is more my cup of tea well, I mean, than th- those big stations. I mean, I remember my family's from Florence. I, knew I that. went to college here. I, I, knew that. I used to work literally right up the street from this very studio. You may not remember this, but you and I met at the coffee. At, at, for coffee at Atlanta Bread Company with Dr. Neil Thigpen. I remember that. He was there with us. This would have been 2008. It was a long time. 2009. I got to ask you this, and we'll get to a lot of different things as the um, conversation progresses. Um, I've kept up with Jennifer on Facebook. Mm -hmm. How is she? Listen, so for those who don't know, and and she's been very public about it, um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer last January. um, And so she has received a year full of breast cancer uh, treatment, chemotherapy, had a double mastectomy last June. And uh, about three, right in the middle of the Murdoch trial, she actually rang the bell, the bell that they ring when you when you finish your one year of treatment. And and so I was I came home for that and was able to be there for that that milestone. And then she had her final reconstructive surgery uh, the Monday after the trial ended. So I made it home for that. Um, and so she is now in the full recovery phase. And I tell when people ask how Jennifer's doing, I say other than being married to me, she's great. Um, so thank you for asking about her, but she is now a cancer survivor. We're well, so excited. But, but, but okay, but but how do you keep your um, how do you keep your feces consolidated when you got all these things going on with your job, being the Attorney General of South Carolina? You got kids, you got a wife. Wife unexpectedly has a pretty serious illness. I mean, I, how does that change your the, the perspective you have on, on politics and life in general? Well, when you have someone in your family going through a medical crisis, you, your your priorities start to realign you know when when everyone's riding high in the world you take a lot of things for granted and then all of a sudden you get hit life hits you in the gut and all of a sudden you you have to kind of recalibrate and say what's important to me and so like you know for me i kind of reset when i with family time you know being with my kids you know seeing jennifer now do better and and have gone through this recovery process you you were gonna lose her um I mean, was there ever a prognosis that said, no, I mean, cancer scares the crap out of me, man. I don't know about you, but when I hear cancer, I hear, wow, somebody's getting ready to die. I mean, I know that's not the truth, but did that, that, that ever cross your mind? Well, you, you're the more, the mortality of your loved one always crosses your mind when your they're soulmate, faced with, man. when, when you, yes, when you are faced with a life threatening disease, mortality enters your head. But I try not to catastrophize when something bad happens. I try to compartmentalize. And so when when we got the diagnosis early on, we called it early. I mean, the, the the doctors were really good at managing expectations and not, you know, we weren't in the pits of despair, but we weren't flying high either. We were kind of even, at least I was. I don't I want to speak you. for her. But, you know, when we got the diagnosis, I mean, the first thing you want to start doing, is everyone becomes a Google doc, right? We start, get, you get on online and you start Googling the, the profile of your cancer, what type, what stage, what what it all is. And you start reading all these horror stories and 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 I didn't do that. 
Um, but the doctors did a great job of managing our expectations, and I never got to a place where I thought I was going to lose her. Um, but I, I was very concerned, obviously, and very nervous. But I just never let my I never let my head go there. The idea of thinking about that is too. A hard. lot of people don't know this, but mine and your political lives are intertwined yeah. in the weirdest way imaginable. Um, I did some dumb shit back when I was running for lieutenant governor. We say that on podcasting. I did some dumb stuff back when I was running for lieutenant governor, and Alan had to deal with my mistakes, my mm-hmm. transgressions, mm-hmm. my misgivings. A lot of you don't know this, but Alan has friends. I have friends, and we have overlapping relationships. Uh, some of his friends are real good friends with some of my friends. And how long ago? I mean, was it three or four years ago that you and I ate lunch together? Yeah, about five, actually. Five, five years five ago. Years ago. Um, we sat down uh, five years ago and said grace over um, the events of our political lives. Mm-hmm. In other words, I, I am a former lieutenant governor who, once again, you ready? Did some dumb shit. And in, in, uh, in, in the way I reported my campaign financing, mm-hmm. um, the attorney general of South Carolina was obligated mm-hmm. to deal with that, responsible for dealing with that. But I think Alan will agree with me. Life's too short to be resentful, mm-hmm. to be bitter, to be angry, to to hold grudges. So friends of Alan and friends of mine suggested we sit down, yeah. and we did. We did. And I'd like to think that that was good for you and good for me. Oh, I listen, it was cathartic, if there's a word I could use. And, and Ken, I just want to be the first person to say that you are the gold standard for when people fall down in life, either of their own making or they're pushed down, whatever, whatever puts you on the ground how to get up, dust yourself off and reinvent yourself. And I mean, like when I hear about, when I hear about you, I hear about this successful radio program um, and, and just, that you have just really kind of revitalized yourself. And I'm, I'm so proud of you uh, and what you've done here in this community. I mean, it's just amazing. And I mean, listen, um, I'm excited to be on your podcast and I understand you told me just a few minutes ago, am I your first? You're the first guest ever. I'm the first guest the ever first on guest your ever. podcast. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and I'm, this was by design. You were the guy I wanted to be the oh, first wow. guest. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I didn't know that. Well, that, I mean, it, it goes back to just some of the things that we are. We, we will be forever connected to the yeah, weirdest way yeah. imaginable. But but there's some out there that say, why would he have Alan Wilson on his, on his podcast? Why would Alan, Alan Wilson come on, on his <laughs> podcast? Well, I mean, life is complicated, and we make mistakes, and I made uh, some mistakes, and Alan had to deal with those mistakes. But I've gotten up. I, I found a new way forward. You have been unbelievably impressive. And I mean this sincerely as the AG of South Carolina oh, since 2010. Um, and, and, and I want to get to a, to, to a case that has been, I mean, it put Colleton County, it put Jasper, it put Walterboro on the national scene. But more than anything, Alan, it put the Attorney General's Office of South Carolina in the national spotlight. Um, when did the Alec Murdoch case hit your desk when did you realize that there will be a moment in time that this will define or could potentially help define or play a part in defining my tenure as ag well i'm gonna i'm gonna take a step back okay um and i'm gonna come back and answer that question but you were talking about you know my growth i guess you alluded to you know from 2010 till now when i was elected and and to now and i always tell people you know whether you're whether you're the president of the united states or the local dog catcher whatever office you hold the only way to learn how to do that job people run for it saying i am going to be the best one at it the only way to know how to do it is to do it and 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 so like be, whether you're lieutenant governor or attorney general you make mistakes along the way you're figuring it out and you hit the you trade paint on the wall and my tenure as ag i've made i've had my mistakes i've had high points low points 
But um, I think, you know, I'm glad that this this case, if it had to happen, I hate that people were murdered, but if our office had to get a case of this kind of notoriety, I'm glad that we got it at this time in my tenure as opposed to eight, nine, ten years ago. Because just like an athlete, I'm I'm more trained up uh, now than I was eight, nine years ago in the job. And so I feel like the being in this position for this many years kind of prepared me for what was coming. Um, but to your question specifically, um, so our office doesn't initially didn't initially get this um, case. Um, as you know, there are 16 circuit solicitors. People might call them district attorneys in other states. And the attorney general in South Carolina is the chief prosecutor of the state. But most of the crimes, most of the violent type crimes, the murders, the mayhem, the robberies, that kind of stuff, it happens and it's prosecuted at the local level. Usually when there's a conflict uh, between the local sheriff, or the local law enforcement, or the, the local DA or solicitor, our office steps in and takes the case. So that is what happened in this particular case. But before we even talk about the murders, there was another case that, that involving Murdochs that happened back in, 29, in February 2019. And that is, the, if for the people who are watching the HBO Max or the Netflix documentaries, they spend a lot of time talking about the boat ca- case that tragically took the life of Mallory Beach. And so that case um, involved Paul Murdoch, who was the victim in the murder case, was the defendant in that case. And he was driving the boat that ultimately, under the influence that ultimately killed Mallory. And we indicted him uh, in that case. But that case came to us because of all the inherent conflicts with the Murdoch family and local law enforcement agencies down in that community. So our office got that case early on. Of course, Paul was murdered. That case got dismissed because he's now deceased. There's no point in prosecuting a case when the defendant is deceased. Um, several months after the murder, and the murder occurred June 7th, 2021. Um, I got the case on August 11th of 2021. When you say got the case, explain to our listeners okay. or viewers, how, how do you get the case? So, um, you know, I figured at some point we were going to get the case. And by getting the case, meaning the solicitor would either recuse themselves and say, hey, I'm too close to this or my office should not. For, for So you, you're suspecting that something's headed your way I'm, before you actually get the official notification. Yes. And, and ultimately, I probably would have taken the case. But um, I wanted to give local law enforcement and the local solicitor the opportunity to do evaluate the case, the local prosecutor down in, in, in the Beaufort County area, in that, which also includes Colleton, Hampton, Allendale, all those counties. Um, they were in Jasper. They were, uh, uh, Duffy Stone was the solicitor. He was allowed to evaluate the case over the summer. And he calls me uh, second week of August to say, hey, I just met with SLED. I'm sending you this case because Alec is now their primary suspect. Um, and I got that letter from him that day saying, I'm officially out, you're officially in. And so at that point, we became the lead prosecution agency um, on that case. Uh, about a week or two later, uh, we went and sat down with SLED, and they gave us the full download on everything that they and Colleton County and other law enforcement agencies had done up until that point. Um, now, Alec was not, you know, obviously – the only suspect as far as, I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he was the main suspect, but the investigation was continuing to go on. So we didn't know where it was going to lead us at that time. And SLED is doing the investigating. Correct. Did you know the Murdoch family? How aware were you of the Murdoch family and the legacy of the Murdoch family in that, in that district? So I um, knew who they were. I had met Randolph Murdoch, who was Alec Murdoch's father, and he had been the solicitor. And if you know, if you look at the Murdoch family, um, they're four generations of Murdochs we're talking about. Starting in 1920, you had the first Murdoch. Richard Murdoch was a solicitor all the way up until like 1940. He was killed, I think, in a car accident. From 1940 to 1986, you had Buster Murdoch, so nearly half a century. 
Buster Murdoch was the solicitor for that circuit, five counties, right? And then in, in 86, uh, Randolph Murdoch, um, who was Alex's father, was a solicitor all the way up until, I think, 2006 or seven or eight, somewhere in there for 20 years or so. Um, and then Duffy Stone was the first non-Murdoch to become solicitor in a century, and he's been there since then. So I had met Randolph at solicitors because I was a young solicitor. Sure, I worked sure. for Donnie Myers, the 11th Circuit solicitor. So I'd been around them. I'd actually back in, I think I had met, I had met Alec before, but I would say it was probably around 2008, 2009. I'd met them at some event that I was at and they were there. And, um, and so I just knew them socially, but I, I didn't know them intimately. The Snapchat video seemed to be what turned the case for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I'll level with you. I mean, I was fixated. I mean, I got consumed with it. I mm-hmm. saw you in the courtroom and I thought you did a wonderful job Thank and acquitted you. yourself very well. And, uh, in some of your examining and cross examining, but, but I, I became so, and, and here's what I'm interested. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an AG. I know very little about the law. Um, the, the, the human component, yeah. you know, that th- there's a reality in life that good people do bad things and bad people do good things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's just, it's been around since the beginning of time. It'll probably be around until you and I are long gone, but, but I try to determine, okay, this guy is a liar. He's a cheat. He's a thief. He's a bad business partner. Um, but, but did he kill his wife and kid? Mm-hmm. And, and as you guys presented evidence, it, it, it was more convincing to me that he did. Right. Was the Snapchat video the, I don't want to say you have a high five moment because you said it earlier, uh, a, a kid and a woman are dead. Right. And there's no happiness in that. There's right. no joy to take in that. But when did you get the Snapchat video? And, and, and I mean, I'm not t- period of time. I mean, I know you don't know the day and the time of day, but, but, but work me through. You, 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 Alec is the suspect, mm-hmm. the lead suspect. Mm-hmm. Did we have the Snapchat video then, then, or did that information come as the case progressed? So, yeah, I'm happy. I can answer that. Um, so, so first off, we didn't have enough evidence to indict Alec of murder back when he was a suspect uh, when we first got the case. But there was a lot of things that he was saying that didn't make sense. And, you know, the defense's theory of the case was the state, meaning SLED, local law enforcement, eventually us, we zeroed on him from day one and we never looked anywhere else. Well, that's not true because every time people, we had a hotline. So people would call SLED and say, they would just off the wall, people, a tip line would call into the tip line and say, hey, Billy Bob down the street says so-and-so was, the mur- you know, they'd have to go and talk to Billy Bob and John Doe and Jane Doe. They had to trace down. They couldn't not go talk to people because then they knew that would be thrown in their face. So we pursued every lead, and by we, I mean SLED did, and uh, in the early days of the investigation, the, p- the problem was is, and they kept talking about this circle, where when you start an investigation, you're trying to get people out of the circle. You're verifying, okay, you're the, you're the first, you know, the husband who's the first person on the scene starts off in the circle just by by mere presence in sure. relationship. So they go, okay, we got to find out where you were. We got to eliminate you so we can go down. And as we were eliminating every single possible suspect, there was just a piece, there was information that prevented law enforcement from eliminating Alec from consideration. So as the investigation goes on, obviously we're uncovering all the financial crimes for li- literally a year. The one thing that was troubling was his timeline didn't add up. So in, if you remember in the timeline, Paul at, approximately 840, has a four-minute conversation with a young man named Rogan Gibson. Mm -hmm. That is the young man whose dog is in the video. Mm -hmm. They were boarding the dog there, and they were trying to examine the dog's tail. 
Well, there was no video to corroborate that. There was Rogan's statement to law enforcement that I over I thought I overheard Alec in the background. When Alec was confronted with that, well, Rogan says you were there, you know, at eight forty something that night when he was talking with Paul. Um, the last conversation he ever had with Paul, and you said you were taking a nap. And he goes, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically kind of denies and dismisses that. No, he must have been wrong um, that I wasn't there. So it was just a he said, he said. In, I believe, April of 22, which is approximately 10 months after the murders, law enforcement is able to get into the iPhone, to Paul's iPhone. And that is where that video was. Because you remember, the video was taken because Paul and Rogan, are talking on the phone for four minutes at 8.40 to 8.44 about the dog's tail. They want to get it examined. Rogan says, why don't you try to FaceTime so I can see it, so I can observe it. They, they attempt to do a FaceTime video. The FaceTime fails after 11 seconds. So Rogan tells Paul, why don't you do a video and text it to me? That's when Paul does a 50-second video of the dog's tail. That 50-second video ends at 8.45 and 45 seconds. Uh, There's in that video that you hear Paul... Um, Alec and Maggie off in the distance yelling, and it's clearly Alec's voice. We did not know that video existed until 2022, like 10 months after the murders. So when we got that video, we now have a guy who's lying about his, his, where he was when three or four minutes before the murders occurred. And so that really zeroed in on him. Now, that's not the only evidence, but it was a crucial piece sure. of evidence. I mean, it was the one that really turned me in a particular mm-hmm. direction. Uh, you talk about the financial crimes. There are some that criticized your office for concentrating too much and too long on the financial crimes. Why did you think it was that important to continually drill that this guy has lied, this guy's cheated, and this guy's stolen? Well, first off, there's there's a number of I can unpack that in several ways. First off, when you're going into a case, you don't know what is and what is not important to those 12 members of the jury that are going to making a decision. And if you don't put information in, the record, you can't argue it in closing summation at the end of, of a case. So people were like, you're spending too much time. You're, you're going into Did you hear much- the criticism? Uh, I didn't at the time. I mean, people at the office would say social media is upset that you're going gotcha. this direction. Okay. Yeah, but okay. I didn't, I didn't, gotcha. I wasn't watching our, our coverage. You're focused on your job. I'm focused on our job for that six week period of time. But people, but I did hear from office that social, that social media and everyone on the news was concerned that we were spending too much time on that. But here's the thing. We don't care what people on social media think. We care what the 12 jurors think. And if we don't put the information in, we can't argue it in closing. And also, we don't know what's important to them. Also, when the defense opened the door in, in, a, in a law, in the law, you can't say John Doe is a lying, lyingest liar who ever lied. Therefore, he probably murdered his wife and son. You can't do that. Uh, you, there, there's, you can't just go use um, evidence of other bad acts to prove another completely unrelated crime. But when the defense opened the door to the motivation and to his state of mind, the court allowed us to, you are allowed to go into those things to prove what their mental, what was going on in their mind, what they were thinking at the time. And so the defense was trying to say, this is a happy-go-lucky family man who would have no reason to murder his spouse. And when they did that, like, well, wait a second, this happy-go-lucky is living a separate life that no one knows about. He's not only been stealing from his clients, he's stealing from his law partners. He's stealing from his own family, and he's not been doing it for a couple of months. He's been doing it for more than a decade. And by the way, he's doing it to fuel a drug habit he's got. You know, I mean, you heard about the, the amount of pills he was taking. So we went into all that financial crimes because, A, we wanted to lock him in on the lies. 
um, because now he still has to go to trial on on those cases. And now we have him locked in on, you know, his admissions because he took the stand. But we had to go in there to tell the jury, this is a man who had lived his entire life, Ken. His entire existence was predicated on this family legacy that he was this pillar of the community in his mind's eye and that all of that was going away. There was a there was a gathering storm as Creighton Waters, the, the chief prosecutor I signed the case to, um, argued. There was a gathering storm. It was all coming to a point. A few days later, there was going to be a hearing where the process of opening up his financials to the world was going to begin. It wouldn't probably happen that day, but it would have begun the process. And his entire world was going to come crashing down. And everything, his crimes were going to come to the light of day. He was going to lose his livelihood. He was going to lose his bar license everything. And he had to make the ultimate decision. What do I do to survive? And murdering his wife and son was the decision that he made. Does it, does it spook you to know that you hear him on a Snapchat video and somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five minutes later, he kills his wife and kid. I mean, there, there's something weird about hearing a man's voice, knowing that he intends to yeah. kill his wife and kid did you guys, I mean, once again, I know you're lawyers, I know you're prosecutors, mm-hmm. I know you're an attorney general, but you're still a human being. Right. I mean, how do you how do you hash out the, okay, you listen to the Snapchat video, you, you, you place the time of crime, you, you'd all the forensics you needed to gather when right. the most likely time. Help me understand how that didn't freak you out, that here's a guy saying in the most normal way imaginable, and, and four minutes later kills his wife and kid. Well, you know, in my mind, and in, in my theory, and, and it's a plausible theory. You can develop your own theory and your listeners sure. and viewers can develop their own theories. But this is a guy that once he made, so this is what we know. Paul and Maggie were not living at Moselle. Um, Alec contacted Maggie earlier that day and said he wanted her to come by because he was obviously concerned about his dad and he wanted her there. He asked Paul to come there. There was testimony of that in her trial. Her sister said a lot to that Her point. sister, yeah, Marion Proctor. Her mm-hmm. sister said, you know, she's like, Alec wants me to come. I don't know why, but she says, you should go be with him. And she gave and to her everlasting regret encouraged her to go there. Maggie even texts Blanca, the family housekeeper, saying, Alec wants me to come by the house tonight. So she did not want to be there. He wanted her there. He wanted Paul there. He lied about that, by the way. Um, He even said to law enforcement, I don't know why they were, I mean, I guess she wanted to be with me to support me, but he was lying about the reasons for them being there. Um, He wanted him there. A family gun was used. We were able to determine that through ballistics and forensics. We were able to determine a family gun was used, even though we couldn't find the gun. We were able to determine a family gun was used. 1,700-acre farm. So someone who came there would have to have intimate knowledge of that place, where they would be, that Maggie and Paul would be there that night when that's not where they were living, that Alec would not be there. And obviously within minutes of that video, they were brutally murdered, but Alec was somehow left alone. Um, I believe that we could prove all the elements of murder. The problem I always, or the concern that I had is, People have a hard time. Even you right now, you said you struggled with it. I listened to the guy verbally say to his wife and kid something about the dog, and and, and, and more likely than not, five minutes later, he brutally kills that same wife and kid. So lucky, uh, uh, laughing in the back. Sounded like you or I. You and I just joking around, and then four minutes from now, I'm shooting you in the head. That, That is what I like, and that is what the defense said. This is a guy who goes from a loving family man laughing in the background of a video he didn't know was being taken and then he's calmly talking to people, you know, 30 minutes later as he's driving to his mom's house, right? And he's calmly talking to people when he gets when, on the way back. And, th- and then, you know, this is a guy who's going to do that. Well, a person who 
wants to create an alibi, a person who understands that the whole world's going to be looking at this, um, is going to want to create a narrative. He's going to want to make calm, collected conversations with people on the drive to and from Almeida. Almeida. He wants um, his wife and son down there at the kennels in a very rural area of the farm where there's no one around. I mean, is he going to be acting crazy and angry and off the off his rocker? No, he has to have them there. Their guard has to be down for him to jump on them in that moment. So it doesn't, I was able to make that leap. The question is, is where we going to help, was the jury going to be able to make that leap? Well, I mean, I think the jury agreed. I think most people agree. And, and I want to get your take on this. He lived a entitled existence. There's no question about that. Um, the, the, the legacy of his family allowed him to live by a set of rules and guidelines that most people couldn't live live by mm-hmm. that creates uh, a, a certain entitlement the, the entitlement meets extreme narcissism mm-hmm. the extreme narcissism meets kind of a kind of a sociopath mm-hmm. the sociopath may meet psychopath at some point in time but but you argued he's a monster i mean this is that's the argument your team we, ne- we never called proved. him a monster no but i mean i, mean, I, I can read between the lines the, the judge called him a monster I mean, the- you, you 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 didn't stop yeah. at okay he's entitled he is narcissistic he is sociopathic. You said, no, no. He is a psychopathic monster who killed his wife and kid. Mm-hmm. Is that the first time you've ever tried to make that leap? I mean, I'm asking uh, in, in, a, in a trial this high profile, I mean, convincing, once again, it doesn't matter what I think, doesn't matter what people in this in this studio or people in this radio station think, it matters what 12 jurors think, right. thought. I mean, you had convinced yourself, and Creighton Waters had convinced himself that you're dealing with a monster. Mm-hmm. Now you got to convince 12 jurors right. that you're dealing with a monster. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we that was always in the back of our minds that you know we could we could say that you know this is a guy who is exhibiting all of the attributes of someone who's trying to cover something up, you know, because we caught him after the fact and multiple lies, not just one or two, but multiple lies. And again, he's trying to create a narrative that somebody mad about the boat case several years earlier, in which his son was a defendant, came and exacted revenge on the Murdoff family. Okay. That is what he, that's the narrative he's trying to create. But this is not a guy that's acting like he's concerned for his other son who's still alive. He wasn't concerned for his safety or his son's safety. By the way, he was on the stand for a day and a half. Never once did he say, yeah, I was there, and if only I'd been there two minutes longer, I could have stopped this. I, if, if only I'd been there longer. Imagine you leaving your house and your wife and one of your kids are brutally murdered, and you were you were there two minutes earlier and you missed it because you went to the store. You would live with, I mean, the, the survivor's sure, guilt. Sure, he, he never exhibited that. So this is a guy who, as you said, is narcissistic. You, I'm, I'm diagnosing him as sociopathic, but I mean that that's what he was, and he made that leap. It was always in the back of my mind that people might not be able to make that leap with us. From what I've heard from the interviews that the jurors who have given interviews have said, that that, that was not a problem for them. That him that, that the video and his lies and him taking the stand is what helped them to seal his fate. Um, they they were, you know, and I tell people all the time, I mean, everyone forgets about Susan, was it Susan Smith? Yeah. Who, yeah. who, who rolled her car mm-hmm. into the lake with her with children? Two small children. Two toddlers in the background. Mm-hmm. And you could say that was mental illness, but this is a guy that just testified he took 60 opioid pills a day. I don't think it was 60. It would have killed him, but he took a lot of opioid pills for more than a decade. That's going to have a, an effect on your brain. That's going to dull your senses and affect your reason and your ration. You can come to your own conclusions, your own theory, but this is a man who was not well up here even before the, even before you get to the drugs. Did you think there would be an alternate theory offered up by the, the defense, kind of the Ozark, uh, the Netflix series Ozark, mm-hmm. where, where the guy makes a little mistake. Next thing you know, 
the, the little mistake becomes a bigger mistake. Next thing you know, he meets a member of the Mexican drug cartel or a Russian oligarch or a, or a Chinese money launderer. And, and the next thing you know, he's in so deep, there is no way to get out. Did, did, did you consider, did your office consider, did anybody affiliated or associated with the case consider this alternate theory that he got himself in such a, a precarious situation, somebody, something had to be done to somebody he cared about. He owed money. He, um, he mishandled drug funds. I mean, whatever. Did, did anybody ever consider what, what, I, what I refer to as the Ozark theory? We followed the evidence that we had uh, in the direction that it led us. I mean, you wonder before you before you get information. Or well, evidence. it would be natural to wonder that, you, wouldn't you it, wonder, Alan? Of course, of course. It, it, yeah, I mean, did I wonder was there? I mean, did we consider the boat case theory that there were people out there? Of course, we did because at the beginning of the investigation, we didn't know what we didn't know. I mean, uh, investigations. Creighton and I were talking the other day, and he's like, you know, he says, I mean, I agree with him. Investigations are like children. They're organic. They grow. They evolve. They change at each stage of development, right? They're different than they are when they're 10, 15, 25. They change. Um, this investigation evolved, and our theories evolved with it as we came in, as new information came to light. And so, yeah, um, eventually we moved on past that because the evidence did not go that direction. The evidence went a different direction. So we just followed the evidence sure. where it left us. But we considered everything at each stage of development in the investigation. And, and Twitter and Facebook can't affect their impact the way you're doing your business. I mean, it does our opinion, human judgment. I mean, you read something on Twitter. This sounds like an Ozark case, you know, yeah. but but in all, in all honesty, you're following the evidence. I mean, that's your job, and that's what law enforcement uh, is, is is to do. Okay, I want to ask you this. Yes, sir. But because as a, as a layperson who doesn't understand the law, it's hard for me to believe that somebody kills their kid and their wife, execution style, in the most brutal fashion imaginable, and you didn't ask for the death sentence. Why is that? Why, why didn't we try this case as a death sentence case? So there are a lot of factors that you look at when you're considering a capital case. A lot of factors. First off, uh, the first factor is you look at the efficacy of the death penalty. It's been, what, 11, 12 years since the death sentence was carried out in South Carolina uh, because of the lack of drugs. They passed a law allowing us other methods of execution, but that has been challenged in court and is tied up right now. It could be, you know, with, with no legal battles or no lack of drugs to carry out an execution in South Carolina, it could take 25 to 30 years to execute someone with the appeals process the way they run. That's the first thing. Um, number two, um, this is a... This is a highly circumstantial case. Now, circumstantial evidence is just as powerful as direct evidence, especially when you have as much as we did. But we didn't know how. It's not like there is a confession or a video. It was all forensic. It was all trapping him in the lies and narrowing him down to where he admitted he was there a minute, a minute or two before. Um, but it was that. And then you also got to consider the victims. When you're asking for some, someone comes and murders members of your family we're going to be going to you and saying, Ken, we're considering all our options, and one of them is capital case. What do you think? But in this particular case, the victims were obviously supportive of the defendant. Um, and, you know, that was a factor. I mean, you we're, we're going to be asking for the death sentence when the people who, you know, and they, they were also witnesses in the state's case. So we we wanted to be sensitive we wanted to be reasonable. We wanted to be fair going into this case. So asking for the death penalty involves an evaluation of a large number of factors. Um, and for us, when you're going into a case that's this complicated, plus the length of the case would have gone up exponentially. The cost of the case would have gone up millions of dollars. You're funding the defense's case at this point. Um, we'd still be in Carlton County right now in this trial if this was a capital case. So 
we considered all of that, and we figured the the best thing, the best punishment for him is for him to lie in a cell for the rest of his life thinking about what he had done. During this case, there were other issues raised. Mm-hmm. There, there were other examples exposed. Where are we in um, the, the, the maid, you know, the, the housekeeper? Satterfield. Uh, Satterfield. Yeah. Um, the, the, the kid, Smith, that, so. that well, you know, was allegedly run over. And, and some people have questions about that. Yeah. I mean, divulge as much of that as you can, because I would imagine those are ongoing investigations. But, but, but every time we had an answer, there was another question right. that, that arose. Well, what I can tell people is this. I can't comment on an open pending investigation or, or the possibility of an open pending investigation. What I can say is, is that my office, the Office of the Attorney General, when it receives evidence, we will pursue, ev- we will pursue wherever evidence leads us and if we can, if we get evidence sufficient to prove the elements of a particular crime beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury, we will prosecute that case. But we have to meet the legal burden on us. What is that legal burden? Beyond a reasonable doubt. So if if there are four elements to a crime, to, to a crime, we have to convince all twelve jurors um, beyond a reasonable doubt for each of the individual elements of that crime. If if 11 jurors, we convince 11 jurors, but one juror doesn't believe the third element of one of the crimes, it's a hung jury. So it is an, it is a incredible burden on the state. And it's a burden we welcome. It's the, it's the way our criminal justice is set up. You want the burden on the state. Um, so yeah, the burden is ours and it's beyond a reasonable doubt of every element of every crime. You got to be proud of Creighton. I mean, the way Creighton Waters acquitted himself, mm-hmm. I mean, he's going against two high powered, legendary South Carolina defense attorneys. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say your opinion of Creighton because I know what your opinion of Creighton is, but um, but, but it's got to make you proud to know that he represented your office the way he did. Well, if Creighton were here, and the first thing he would say is, you know, he would say thank you, uh, but he would then turn around and say there was a team. And, you know, Ken, I was there for nearly the entire trial, and I was living in the hotel with these young men and women and with Creighton and the rest of the team. There were, there were 12 of us there, 13 if you count our victim's advocate, who was working with, you know, supporting the Murdoch family at the time. That was her job. But, you know, we had seven prosecutors and then five support staff working 16, 17, 18 hours a day, you know, going away from our families, going home at night. It was almost like a dorm, like a college dorm lifestyle. We're all in a hallway at the Hampton Inn and Suites on exit 90 or exit 53 or whatever it is on 95. We, um, we were sitting there, go to bed 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, get up at 5, 6 in the morning. If you could get a workout in, you did. You go get your breakfast and you head back to court, and you're there all day grueling. You got to cut cut it off, right? You could go to the bathroom or you could go. We had to sit there. When court was in, we had to be on you know, 10, 12 hours a day and then work after that. And so I just want to say how proud I am of all of our staff that did that. Um, I mean, they did such a fantastic job. I selected Creighton a year and a half ago to be the chief prosecutor because I've always known Creighton was capable of it. And then from that selection, he was able to build the staff uh, of people to prosecute this case. So yes, I'm incredible. I'm, I'm talking to them like they're like my kids, but I'm so proud of all of them. But what was the case a roller coaster? I mean, there, there were days I thought you guys nailed it. There were other days I thought you left some meat on the bone, mm-hmm. so to speak. There were days that I thought the defense team raised some valid issues I mean, kind of walk me through what it's like to be on that roller coaster. We had a couple of really good days, but 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 today sucked, you so, know. So I, let's, let's use football. Um, you ever watch a, a really good football game when your team's going up against? I think the last Carolina 
Clemson football game was that game. It was good for you and I. It was, yeah, I'm a Gamecock, but in you know, but the point is, is that there were the Friday before the trial started. I went in and I used that as an analogy that that Carolina Clemson game. I said there are going to be moments where you you have a great series and you score, and then you'll be in the next series and you're going to fumble the ball and you're going to turn the ball over, or you're going to get called for a targeting, or you're going to have a yellow flag thrown. You got to get back up and play the next down. You're going to be ups and they're going to be down. They're going to score on us. They're not going to let us just walk into the end zone, right? And they're going to walk into our end zone at times. But when that happens, you can't sit there and beat yourself up. you got to dust yourself off. And so I said there are going to be days when you feel like there's no way we're going to win this case, and there are going to be days when you feel like there's no way we can lose it. Don't believe either of those days. you got to stay focused in the middle and play to the last second of the last quarter. And that's how we treated it. And there were also days where I knew that, okay, the witnesses that we're putting up, not only the jury, but the rest of the world that's watching this trial is not going to understand. Because we're putting up information and people don't know why it's important or they don't know what, why it's relevant and how it fits into the broader story. And we knew that people would probably get bored. A lot of it was very dry, but we had to put it into evidence so that we could tie it all together in our, our big narrative at the very end. So we understood that there were going to be ups and downs, highs and lows in this very long trial and that we just can't focus on any one moment or any one day. Alan, there's a debate. I mean, even in my political days, should we elect judges? Should we appoint judges? Um, I don't know a perfect way to put somebody in a robe and behind uh, the bench, but Judge Newman really acquitted himself unbelievably oh. well. And I mean, for, for I think South Carolina, Virginia are the only two that the General Assembly appoints the judges. The JMC I mean, had, yeah. had Newman, yeah, had Newman appeared to not be up to the task, oh, no. the, the entire system would have been, you know, in, in tangles. But but he really rose to the occasion and appeared to be in control. And fair in, in dealing with whatever issue that uh, that that rose, was it was Judge Newman the embodiment of 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 I mean if, if someone out there says we should elect judges we should publicly elect judges um, had Newman dropped the ball that argument gains energy he didn't drop the ball and and, and I would argue people are now a little more comfortable with the General Assembly electing judges. As a lawyer and AG, what, what do you say to that? So, first off, Cliff Newman was the gold standard of judges, if you ask me my opinion. I second I, that motion. I, I, he is the gold standard, and he I would I would love to clone him and put, you know, Cliff Newman's in every county in South Carolina. Um, he's also a judge that's, you know, at the end of his career, he's in, in the, going into the retirement. He's heading that direction, um, and, and, and good for him. What a great way to, you know, for him to get recognition the way he has, and I, he deserves every last ounce of it. Um Here's the thing. Bad systems can still produce good results. Um, you can have a, a flawed system for electing judges, and then every time you anecdotally have a good judge, you, you can't. That, that, to me, that doesn't sanitize the system. To me, the system needs to be reformed. I'm a huge proponent of judicial reform. Um, when you go back to third grade civics, there's three branches of government. We all know what they are, the executive, legislative, judicial. But in South Carolina... The way that we elect judges is there's this thing called the JMSC. It's Judicial Merit Selection Commission. The JMSC is comprised of 10 people, five appointed by the Speaker, three by the Judiciary Chairman of the Senate, two by the President Pro Tem of the Senate. So three people in the General Assembly appoint all 10 members. Six of those members are actually sitting members of the General Assembly. You and I want to be a judge. We're lawyers. We want to be judges. We apply to the JMSC. The JMSC might have 10 people apply for one vacancy, they pick their three favorite as most qualified and send those three favorite. And it's a, it's a legislatively controlled 
organ, I mean, system sends their favorite three, and the General Assembly then votes from those three. Where is the executive branch's involvement in the selection of judges? There is no check and balance in the in from the executive branch, and we're the one. I'm the one. The governor too. All of us are the ones that have to appear before the judges in all of our agency actions. And, but we have no we have zero say in how judges are elected. So yes, the system has produced many wonderful men and women who have acquitted themselves to use your word amazingly and have done a fantastic job. And I commend them. But the system also has an optic to it where you have. And there are a lot of uh, honorable lawyer legislators who would not abuse their system, but when you have lawyer legislators walking in to appear in front of judges that they get to vote on, and then you have the state on the other side, and we have no say, the executive branch is the one prosecuting the cases, and we have no say in the selection of judges, there's a perception, and it cuts both ways. Lawyer legislators walking in, I've had judges tell me when a lawyer legislator walks into the court, they're not nervous because of ruling against a lawyer legislator. They're nervous because when the lawyer legislators write on a motion, they're, they're saying, if I rule in favor of the lawyer legislators, people are going to think it's because they elected me, not because it was the right decision to make. And then the lawyer legislator gets blamed for it. So it, it hurts them as much as it helps them. So I think we need a system in which everyone has their hand on the rudder, so to speak. Um, and that's why I'm for reforming how judges are elected, giving the executive branch input into that system. I'm totally on board with that. Couple of a couple of other points I want to make. I mean, I, I, I'm not an AG, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a prosecutor, not a defense attorney, but but I'm very suspicious of people who name homes, especially people who name multiple <laughs> homes. I mean, I, they just that, that 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 makes me a little nervous when you got this home named this and another home um, named something else. My kid, my my oldest kid, had an opioid problem, and he was introduced to opiates through a, a surgery he had. Mm-hmm. We had. Um, about eight or nine miserable years. Uh, he finally got to rehab. He's four years clean. He's never, um, and it never led me to believe he'll fall off that wagon, but who knows what the future holds. He and I ran some numbers. How do you do $50,000 a week in, in opiates? And if he, and, and if something doesn't add up there, um, Alan, where, where do we go? How do we forensically account for the missing money? I mean, I don't know if that's your job or not. But I've done back of napkin, <laughs> and I'm a good old boy. Um, it's impossible to do $50,000 a week in opiates, and there's a lot of money missing. What is the AG's responsibility to those two unanswered questions? So we've identified that he took the money, and what, what, what we were seeing is this is a guy living a lifestyle as, as, as privileged as he was and as well-off as he was, um, was still living a lifestyle beyond his means. And if you mapped it out and graphed it out, you would see he was leveraged to the hilt on multiple properties. He had made some bad investments, bad decisions, but he was also living beyond his means. And when you saw when you saw accounts going down, then you would see he would steal money and those accounts would be made whole. And then accounts would go down over here and he would steal money. And those would be, you, you would just kind of see, you could map it out, chart it out. Now, where every single dollar, it's like pouring a cup of water into the ocean. I can't ever account for that specific water. It's now in the ocean. You know where all his dollars went. We can't we can't know where every single individual dollar went. But what we can see is we can see when there was a major, when he was about to fall apart financially, money would go into the account and he would be made whole again. And then he would live for a few months, and then it would slowly get back into a bad state, financial state, and then money would end up there. And so this is a guy who was kind of he was getting over his skis, but he would always right side up right before he fell apart. 
And he did that for a decade or more. But you can't sustain that forever. And it, it, it got out of control. And he was also a victim of his own success. When you, when you were able to fool and manipulate and lie to everyone around you, you start to believe that you can do it forever. One of, the, one of my favorite quotes, and I believe it was Abraham Lincoln that said it. I don't, I'm going to butcher it, but I'm going to try to paraphrase it. You can fool all of the people some of the time. You can fool some of the people all of the time. But you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And that kind of, to me, exemplifies what, Alec Mur- what happened to Alec Murdoch. But, but, Alan, it also seemed to be somewhat of an enterprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's hard for me to believe. I mean, I, I get. I mean, it, you and I had a conversation earlier. Um, entitled, narcissistic, sociopathic, uh, psychopathic, monster, but 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 he corrupted so many other people in his universe. Have we vetted all those people yet? Do, do we believe that people who were complicit in Alex's behavior have been held accountable? Well, yeah, you can look at some of the. There's a federal case, and there's another indictment, in our, and I don't want to go into those cases. Sure, They're pending, but but we have indicted other people complicit in, in his. Um, you know, the, the people at the bank and, and the, the other lawyers, they're people who have been held accountable, at least as far as being called out in an indictment. But obviously, there's still pending investigations and there's still ongoing, you know, investigations. And I don't want to make comments on those. Those deserve privacy until we get to uh, to a decision point. But um, look, as I said before, and I get asked this question all the time regarding other victims and other perpetrators of, you know, people complicit in Alex's conduct. When we receive information or evidence that leads us to believe that we can prove every element of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, we will pursue that in a court of law. Um, just because you believe something doesn't mean you can prosecute it. I mean, I tell people all the time, I can't prosecute what I believe. I can only prosecute what I can prove. How do we stop the next legal dynasty from happening in South Carolina? How do, how do we stop? I mean, you know, I mean, there's a higher degree of accountability and scrutiny and exposure and mm-hmm. transparency. But, but you said it at the beginning of, of mine and your conversation. I mean, that crowd had been running the judicial system in that part of the state for 100 years. Mm-hmm. How do we make damn sure that doesn't happen again? Well, I think a couple things. Uh, first off, um, I'm not going to say because someone has the last name Ard uh, and you have family here that they shouldn't pursue your career path and do things. Sure, fair enough. I, I, as you know, I have a relative with the last name Wilson who's also in government. You know, there are people out there who, because of their exposure as young people, they pursue what their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents did. I don't think we should look down on that. That's what some families just gravitate toward that. What I think we do, we don't need to eradicate the ability of people in the same families pursuing public service or legal service in, like, like the Murdochs did. We need to have a system that is transparent so that when people do pursue that, they can't hide in the shadows. You go back to South Carolina in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s. I mean, there was a lot of shadows. The way things were done back then, no one ever knew. It is very difficult now with all of the transparency, with the Internet, with the oversight. It still happens, and people are very creative in how they still cheat and manipulate and abuse their power. Um, But it's much more difficult now than it was, say, 50 years ago. So what I think we do is, is sunshine is a great antiseptic. You know, when you flip on a light in a dark room, the roaches scatter. If you don't leave them any shadows to go to, you can stomp them out. We just got to remove all the shadows and keep the lights on and then let people operate in the free market. If you have 10 people who are named Smith that want to run for office in a community, let them do it. We, we, We shouldn't stop them. And if the public wants to keep electing that family, let them do it. 
but let's have this, let's have the lamps on. Let's no shadows. Okay, you're you're the AG. I mean, I host a radio show and a podcast. I read a lot about the declining trust people have in their government. Um, I have more faith in our government today than I did when when I thought Alec Murdoch was going to get off killing and uh, I mean just living the life he led for as long as he was allowed to live it. But but how do we recreate the trust necessary? And, and I mean, you, you apply justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing government does more important than apply justice. I mean, you have the ability to indict, uh, that, that, that is an enormous power in a democracy or representative Republic. But, but, but Alan, I mean, I'm a former politician, you're a current politician. How do we reinstill some degree of trustworthiness in, in our government? That is a question I have wrestled with and am wrestling with today. Um, I can use. Do you my, agree it's an issue? Yes, yes. I will say you've given me probably the best compliment I could get when you said that you had a you you questioned government before the Murdoch case and and you feel like your faith was at least somewhat restored. Well, I mean, here, here's, I mean, I'm, I'm a level with you. We're gut level honest with one another. I said to myself under my breath, I'm glad Allen didn't get this damn case ten years ago. Because I'm, I'm not I, sure you'd have been ready for it. I'm I mean, glad. is that a fair criticism? I, I said that at the beginning of you the did. interview. You did. I, I'm glad that, you know, uh, maturing in my role, and, and not just me, but our staff working together for the years that we did, I'm glad that it happened when it did. I wish it never happened, but if it had to happen, I'm glad it was now because I feel like we were cap- better, more, more prepared for it. You feel justice was done. I do. I do. Now, to your question, so... I get criticized every day of my life. I'm, I, I'm thinking of criticisms right now. I've criticized you in a long time. And, 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 and listen, but you know what? <laughs> As a member of the media and an entertainer, I, I'm fair game. And if I do something you disagree with, I'll accept the media. I mean, I'll accept the entertainer part. I, I'm not a member. But you member. are. But, but you do. You do provide the public well, in this sure community with information. I mean, you're kind I, enough to sit down with us for an hour. Uh, and I love this. I'm having a lot of fun with you right now. But for instance, people, no matter what I do, I'm going to upset half the people in the room. If I, if I prosecute this person, people saying it's because I'm on a witch hunt or have a, I'm politically driven or I'm trying to showboat. I mean, I struggle with this being in trial. I went down there to support our team and got criticized for being there. I was criticized because I didn't do enough. I took a witness to support the team. But, you know, I'm getting criticized no matter what I, I do. I would have been far more bothered had you not been there. When I saw you in the courtroom, mm-hmm. it, it, it mattered to me. I mean, if, if, the, if the AG's office is going to take a case this important, the AG needs to be there. And, and that's why I felt like I needed to be there with them. I need to put my neck out on the line because they worked. Sure. And that's why I went there. And that's why I didn't take a lead role in it because I'd already picked the, I told Creighton, I said, Creighton, to borrow an analogy, I'm like in World War II, I'd be FDR, you'd be Eisenhower. You know, FDR is Eisenhower's boss, but Eisenhower's storming the beaches of Normandy sure. and coming up with the plan overlord. But anyway, back to my point. Um, people want when when you when you go after someone or you pursue something, you're going to be assigned a motive, and if you don't pursue someone, you're going to be assigned a motive. You're you're not going after this person because you're shilling for them or the system's corrupt or you're corrupt, or you're going after this person for the same reasons. I'm screwed no matter what I do, and so I've wrestled with this because I've had people come up to me and say, "Why won't you come down on these people?" And I'm thinking to myself, "You don't want the power of the attorney general." being being used against the citizenry of this state just because people believe something. I tell citizens all the time, it doesn't matter what you believe about election integrity, about corruption, about 
drug trafficking, human trafficking, whatever your issue is, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's only what I can prove with the resources that I have at my disposal, including SLED. If I can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, then I don't need to be going out there swinging a stick and ruining people's lives. Because it's a big stick. It is a big stick, and it will, it'll make you feel good, citizen you know, A, but citizen B, who's in the, t- the, the, the hairs of it, it's ruining them. And I, and I take that very seriously. I, 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 have a, I tell people, don't mistake meekness for weakness. Meekness is power under control. I'm very meek with the power I've been given. Because I'm not pursuing something doesn't mean that I don't believe there's corruption or don't believe there's something should happen. It just means that I can only use that power if I can meet the legal elements and if I can prove it beyond the burdens placed on me. But because I'm not pursuing it, people get mad and angry and they, they yell at us. So I'm dealing with this. To your question, I struggle with that question right now. Very well explained. Um, thank you. And I mean that yeah. sincerely. I mean, we could go on forever and ever. I do have one last comment. So um, you're a Gamecock. I'm a Gamecock. Mm-hmm. Um, are we going to be? I think I sat with one of your kids at a game last I, I, year. I think you may have. Yeah. Um, they told me you did. Was, they were sitting um, right behind me. We yeah, spoke. Yeah. And they behaved, I think. They, they did. And they were They were they, perfect, they, perfect angels. My, my daughter's a sophomore at Carolina now. My kids are My two boys are. How old are your kids? Are all? Your kids are how old now? My son will be 15 next okay. month in four weeks. My daughter turned 13 this past December. And Jennifer's prognosis is good. She, she, other because to me that's the most important thing. I mean, it really and truly is. And I, I, I have, I have struggled watching her struggle, and I mean that sincerely. I'm gonna tell her that when we leave here. I thank you for saying that. I, my joke, and you can take it as a joke or not. I tell people, other than being married to me, she's doing great. <laughs> my, my wife can relate to that. I can assure you that. Hey, before we get out of here, I want to thank our sponsors once again uh, with a little added ingredient here. If you're in big business and looking for an industrial park in the south to build your new plant, consider Marlboro PD Electric Co-op's PD Commerce Center. Um, it's an industrial park located at the I-95 exit in Florence, uh, South Carolina. Check it out at MPDC Co-op or PD ec.com mickey fins largest south carolina liquor wholesaler serving every county in the state largest bourbon selection got that jefferson's ocean if you're a uh, old school jeffersonian like i am um statewide ship wines to 43 states um soon opening a new beverage warehouse across from bucky's on 995 in florence schofield's ace hardware your one-stop shop for all your hardware paint and lawn and garden needs uh, plus all things sporting goods including firearms safe clothing footwear and more pepsi of florence got my life water i gave him some aquafina this is reverse osmosis i gotta get you on some of this i mean seriously when you purify water you take out some of um god's natural ingredients Mm -hmm. and it's not quite as healthy when you go um reverse osmosis you um uh, you you put back in the water you take the contaminants out but you put the good stuff right back in so um life water and pepsi are sponsors as well thank you my friend and i mean that sincerely thank you good to see you yes sir